Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today, a conversation with Wyoming writer Craig Johnson. Craig Johnson's New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire novels, which are the basis for Longmire, the Netflix original drama. Craig Johnson has received many awards for his books. He lives in Ucross, Wyoming, population 25. The latest novel in the Longmire series is Land of Wolves. We'll talk about that book, of course, and uh, much else. Uh, Craig Johnson, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Hey, Tom, good to be here. Good, good to have you with us. Uh, <laughs> uh, so this is this is number fifteen, is it? It is number fifteen in the novels, with two novellas and a collection of short stories. Yeah, and, uh, I'm always amazed because people always think it sounds like a whole lot of books I've written, and I'm always thinking to myself, it seems like I could have done more by now. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I'm happy with it. Like uh, you know, and I've got mm. another one. See, the the next one is called uh, the Next to Last Stand, which has already gone into the publisher. Like, and I've actually started one uh, for the I guess two years from now called uh, Daughter of the Morning Star. So so I'm on it. I'm, I'm trying my best. Like that, you know. But uh, you know, when you're living in a town of 25 and it's blizzarding, there there isn't a whole lot left to do but go and run. Right, you know, so it's probably a good thing. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of blizzards there in Ucross. Well, yeah, I mean, we're, we've reached that event horizon in the winter in Wyoming where you run out of places to put the snow. Yeah, it's one of those kind of things. You know, <laughs> so we've kind of gotten to that point. Look at and uh, that that old ADN tractor of mine is getting a little bit tired. It's only the middle of February, so I don't know. I I, I bought that old tractor, that old forty-eight tractor, because there was one point in time when I had to you know, dig out the entire ranch road, you know, all the way down to the highway, like that with a hand shovel. And uh, I remember laying on the front porch, you know, as my wife came out to check and see if I was alive. And she's like, are you okay? And I was like, I am never doing that again. <laughs> so we kind of had to up the ante just a bit. But uh, I don't know. I mean, that's that's one of the, the nice things about, you know, living where I live and doing what I do. Like that, that uh, you know, I get to go up into the loft, you know, and sit down to the keyboard there. And there's that, that ensemble of characters um, that I can just escape into, into their world. And, uh, you know, boy, I can't imagine a, a better way of making a living. It's pretty great, i got to mm. admit. By the way, speaking of winter, uh, Longmire himself fantasizes about, uh, you know, retiring to New Mexico. <laughs> He does. I actually had the mayor of Hatch, New Mexico, because that's that's where Walt is always threatening, you know, to uh, escape to. Not Santa Fe or Albuquerque or anything like that, but just you know, someplace you know, like Hatch, um, you know, where it's warmer and they have chilies. Like it. And uh, I actually had the mayor of Hatch write me a, a, a letter saying that they they would be more than happy to entertain Walt Longmire if he should like to come to Hatch, New Mexico. <laughs> and uh, it, it was a very nice letter, very sweet of them. Like, and I don't know, maybe on one of these times that Walt has to go. Go, you know, outside the state. I may have to send him to Hatch, New Mexico, mm-hmm. just because I've mentioned them enough times. <laughs> uh, so you got you got towns vying over over Longmire. By the way, um, <laughs> th- there, there's such thing as Longmire days now. You can go to Buffalo, there is, Wyoming. There is. We have this uh, this event that, that we we it, it started off with some very humble beginnings. Um, it was actually me and a couple of boxes of books. Uh, sitting under an umbrella in front of the Busy Bee Cafe there on Main Street in Buffalo, which is kind of the model uh, for Durant um, in the books and, and even on the television show. Like that. And, um, you know, we had like about 100 people show up, which was really great. Like that. And then the Office of Tourism here in Wyoming asked me, they said, well, is there, you know, any way you could get the actors from the TV show to come up for Longmire Days? And I, I said, well, I don't know. I, maybe I can ask and see how many of them do you want. And they said, all of them. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so I did. And uh, the entire cast, you know, with the the only exclusion has been uh, Lou Diamond Phillips, look at who is an incredible work schedule and hasn't been able to make it. He's he's dropped in on a number of other events that I've done uh, across the West, like that. But he hasn't made it to Longmire Days. But the rest of the cast always does, like at uh, Robert Taylor, Adam Bartley, Katie Sackoff, like at uh, you know, it's just a, a wonderful cast. I mean, here we are, you know, like two and a half years, I guess, after um, production has ceased, you know, for, for at least for now. Um, um, on Longmire, like that, and we still pulled like twelve to fifteen thousand people um, into the little town of Buffalo, like that. And uh, you know, ten minutes after we make the announcement of the dates for Longmire Days, there isn't a hotel to be had for ninety miles around. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think a lot of that speaks to you know the individuals that we had as cast members. It was just a a really wonderful uh, group of people, and they're very accessible. Um, they're very friendly. Like that, and uh, you know the people that come to Longmire Days, they tend to come back every year um, just because it's uh, it, it's an enjoyable event. <laughs> 
What, what do you think? Uh, what do you think the appeal is? It, it, obviously, Longmire the novels uh, has ha, has an enduring appeal. What do you think it is? Um, I think a lot of it has to do, you know, with the characters too. I mean, you know, it, it's a wonderful cast. It was a wonderful show, um, but I think that there's a resonance, you know, to the books in the sense that, you know, I mean, I was I was doing an interview, you know, for a, a French magazine, like, and they were asking me, you know, you know, what was the, you know, the appeal of like, you know, attempting to do, you know, a, a mystery series that basically took place out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, the way that I've described Walt as is that the sheriff of the least populated county in the least populated state in America, and you know, I mean. You know all of the, the the crime fiction books you know that are written in New York and L.A. and Chicago and Miami and all that they're wonderful books like that but there, there seems to be a plethora of them there seems to be an awful lot um, well I mean there's a lot of crime there so a lot of crime fiction like that and so there's not quite so much you know that's rural um, and certainly not so much that's rural that you know, tries to treat the situation with a you know an honesty that. Um, you know, you're dealing with situations that actual, like when you know that, that Western sheriffs, you know, would deal with, and I think that there's a believability factor, and then I think there's also a decency, you know, to the characters, um, and to the books that people really respond to. You know, that that you know, Walt Longmire, you know, is one of those guys that really cares about the people in his county. You know, he, he's not a guy that drives around with a pair of you know, chrome sunglasses and glares at the people who voted for him. Um, that was one of the things, you know, that I learned, you know, doing a lot of ride-alongs, you know, with Wyoming sheriffs. I'm sure it's the same with Utah sheriffs. I know it is. Like I've spent enough time in Utah that you know the the the, the phrase that these sheriffs use over and over again is "my people, my people." Um, you know, it's 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 more you know like neighborhood style uh, law enforcement. You know, you're, you're involved with the people's lives. I mean, they've given you one of the most important things that they could ever possibly give you, which is their vote. And you know, and and they feel like you know that that they're connected. Um, you know, people that will march into a sheriff's office, you know, and and uh, to talk to a sheriff, it would never in their right mind ever think about, you know, walking into a police department and uh, and talking to a chief of police. But, you know, but they gave, you know, a sheriff their vote. And so they'll march in there and they'll talk like, and ask that sheriff things. And so for me, that makes for a really fertile, you know, groundwork, um, you know, for the novels. You know, it's really kind of uh, exciting for me to, like, go through the newspapers, you know, and listen to the radio, you know, television, you know, all of these things, documentaries, whatever it is, like that, that I stumble onto to come up with ideas. Ideas um, that I think are going to be entertaining. They're going to be dramatic, but also have a touch of realism to them. Um, you know that, that people can respond to. Of course, the the other big factor uh, is the setting, right? Uh, I think people are, are fascinated by Absaroka County and this this beautiful beautiful place of the world, where essentially based on where you live. I think. Oh, absolutely. Like, and uh, you know, and I'm kind of giving something away there a little bit. I mean, you know, where I live, you know, here at the base of the Bighorn Mountains, you know, which is 189,000, uh, you know, acres of, uh, of of Cloud Peak Wilderness area, like that. I mean, you know, and the mountains are just under 14,000 feet, but it's also kind of a little forgotten part of the world. Um, you know, most people, you know, when they come to our our area, are in in a big hurry to get from the Black Hills over to Yellowstone, like that, and uh, they kind of forget that there's a mountain range, you know, that, that that's in between. And, you know, for me, that that's always the fun part of, like, you know, trying to discover things that maybe people don't know. And, you know, that, that you know, that, that you know, the, the thought that it's the, the least populated county in the least populated state. Um, you know, I, I've always, you know, envisioned Walt as being kind of a vertical individual in a horizontal landscape. Mm. Um, and that's, you know, kind of fun for me simply because it, 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 it gives us sparsity, I think, to the writing that keeps me from going, you know, off on a tear, you know, with technology or, you know, or, you know, stacking up bodies like cordwood. I mean, you just can't do that in Wyoming. <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't enough people. And, you know, speaking from a guy from a town of 25, there aren't enough people that, you know, you can take advantage of that particular resource. Like, And so what it makes me do is makes me kind of, you know, respond more to character and place, um, which to me is always where the best writing is going to be. I mean, there's a, there's a strong tradition of really incredible, you know, Western writers out there that I'm just, you know, following in their trail, you know, whether it be the Dorothy Johnsons or the Walter Van Tilburg Clarks, you know, or the Jack Schaefers, um, you know, it, it, it just goes on and on, the Ivan Doigs, like that, I mean, all of them that, you know, wrote so poetically um, about this place where we all live. 
And that's kind of the trick, like that is to, to remember this this incredibly romantic, beautiful, epic place where we live. I mean, I, you know, was just flying into Salt Lake here just, you know, no more than maybe about two weeks ago. And, you know, was looking at those snow capped peaks and how gorgeous it is. And I, I sometimes wonder, you know, how many people are driving around down there in Salt Lake that sometimes forget to look up and see that incredible vista of mountains that's there. You know, for me, you know, that that's part of the challenge, you know, to try and capture that, you know, and not only bring it, you know, to you know, people all around the world. I mean, the, the books are translated into, into about 17 languages, you know, and so, you know, for me, it's fun, you know, to go to those languages, you know, go to those countries and be on tour and explain the place where I come from. Like, yeah, but it's also important, you know, to, to work in layers, like that, so that, you know, that there are things about that particular landscape and those people like that, that even the people that live here um, can find entertaining and insightful. And you come, you come from the outside, right? You come from back east. Yeah, I actually, you know, bopped around all over the place like that. But, uh, you know, I, I, you know, my grandfather was a blacksmith, you know, and I rodeoed, you know, and all of that. And so everything kind of led west, you know. And so, you know, I mean, there for a long period of time in my young adulthood, I lived in a half-ton pickup truck, a 1960 half-ton pickup truck that I've got parked down in the shop um, kind of as a stationary trophy, you know, from my uh, ill-spent youth like that. But uh, I never really stayed in any one place, you know, for more than about nine or ten months like that. And, uh, you know, had a lot of different experiences in a lot of different places, ranching, picking strawberries, driving a truck, doing all these different things. Like that. And I kind of like to think that it was all an attempt, you know, to try and, like, garner enough experiences um, to draw from that, you know, that I could be an interesting writer. Um, I, I think that, you know, you can rely on imagination to a certain extent, but I think also you need to rely to a certain extent also on the experiences that you've had in life or else the writing gets a little thin after a while. Like that. And for me, that's one of the challenges is to make sure that the writing doesn't get thin, you know, that I'm not just writing, you know, plot-driven, you know, murder mysteries, that, you know, that there's enough there that, you know, that people can look at them, you know, as literary westerns, that people can look at them as comedic. You know, there's a lot of humor in my books, you know, because just everywhere I go, I find humor. Um, and, and, you know, there's a lot of history in the books. I mean, the, the, the next book is actually called The Next to Last Stand, um, which is based off of a, a lesser-known artist that you might not know, but you you know his work, I guarantee it. Like a fellow by the name of Cassili Adams who made uh, a, a painting um, in the late 1800s called Custer's Last Fight. And the reason you would know that painting is because Anheuser-Busch um, bought it and did posters of it. And so if you've been in any single bar or saloon anywhere in the American West, you have seen that painting. And I'm not going to besmirch your, your character and say that you've been in any bars or saloons ever in your life. Um, but it, yeah, somewhere you've probably seen that poster. Like, mm-hmm. and It was interesting to me to find out about it like that, and then discover that, you know, that it, uh, in, a, in a, a moment of philanthropic uh, uh, you know, desire like that, you know, Anheuser-Busch actually gave that painting to the 7th Cavalry, which was based in Fort Bliss, Texas at that point in time. And in 1946, the commissary that contained that painting burned down and the painting was destroyed. Mm. Or was it? You know, and so for me, you know, Walt's going to be having his first art heist book um, in the next book. And so, you know, it's always fun for me to go and try and find those bits of history that maybe people don't know about and try and utilize them in the book to maybe give a different uh, angle, you know, and a different uh, storyline than, than something I've done before. Uh, we'll go to break soon. When we come back, I want to talk a bit about the the latest book um, and uh, a long and the other characters. Uh, it's always I wonder if you could. T- <laughs> I think I've had you tell this story uh, every time I had you on. But I'm fascinated by this. You're you're you've lived in Philadelphia, I think. You had one of your degrees from Temple, right? Um, mm-hmm. And and you you bounce around. You're trying to trying to find your place, and then you you fall in love with with U Cross. I think you build a, <laughs> a a cabin from a from a kit. But um, as you're kind of in early stages doing that, uh, I, I can't remember who this is. A, a guy comes up and says, looks at the cabin, says, okay to live like this, but we got to get some power in here for your dog. <laughs> well, I, I, was, I built my ranch myself. Like I, I had one of those fathers that thought you were slave labor until you escaped. And, uh, and so I learned how to do basic you know, carpentry and masonry and all that. And so I poured the concrete, stacked the logs, and did it all. But at the point in time when I was waiting to get started on building the ranch, I, I basically had like four truck skids with a tarp piled, or, you know, t- kind of tied over top of it. And a windstorm had come through the, the day before, and it had kind of collapsed, and everything I owned was kind of sitting down there in a big pool of water. And one of the luxuries that I'd given 
myself was I'd gone into the pound and gotten myself a dog because in my adult life, you know, traveling around everywhere, I just thought, you know, I can't do a travels with Charlie if I'm you know, going to be in a different place, you know, every six months. Like it. And so finally settling in, you know, to build the ranch, I thought, okay, I'm going to have a dog. Like it. And so I went and got this dog from the pound and he was living with me. And so when the power guys showed up, uh, to put some poles in uh, to the site on the ranch. Like if they looked at my collapsed uh, little half tent there and looked at me and the dog and said, well, we've got to get some power in here. Like that. it's okay for a human being to live like that, but that poor dog needs a place to live. <laughs> and uh, and that <laughs> kind of gave me a little bit of an indication <laughs> that maybe I was out there on the ragged edge, you know, of American society. But uh, things got a little better and I got the first part of the ranch built and, uh, you know, figured out that uh, anything you fine-tune with a, uh, a chainsaw, I could probably do. Look at it. And, uh, and, and, and I'm sitting in my, my, my lovely uh, ranch right Right now, where if I, if you were here, Tom, I could walk you through and show you every single mistake I made. Like, mm-hmm. but uh, at least it keeps most of the wind out, so it's mm-hmm. not so bad. Yeah, that, that's the joy of it, right? The doing it yourself. <laughs> uh, by the way, that you know, you, I don't know what was best case scenario in your dreams. I, I don't know if your dreams included Longmire days. Oh, no, no. I mean, I just, you know, I, I always wanted to be a writer, like, and I like to think that, you know, all of those experiences that I was having and all the different places I was living and all the different people that I met, you know, and got to work with and everything, that I was, like, you know, garnering, you know, as much, you know, experience as I could to bring to the writing. Um, but it also might just be a massive general rationalization for an ill-spent youth like that, that I was just out wandering around. And then finally sit down, like, because my, my education was in writing, but I just didn't let that get in the way of actually becoming a writer. Um which is a lot of the time the problem. And so I, I sat down and, and just, you know, started thinking about it. Like, you know, what would I like to write? Who would I like to write about? You know, and uh, Walt Longmire kind of came into into being. And uh, I wrote that first one, The Cold Dish, like, and it was a standalone novel. It really wasn't supposed to be a series at all. Um, and then Catherine Court, the president of Penguin, sat me down um, once they picked up the, that particular novel like, and said, you know, we'd really like some more of these. And, uh, you know, and I said, well, I'm, I'm happy to write some more books for you guys. I've got a lot of ideas. And she says, no, I don't think you understand. We would like some more of these. We think these characters, this place and everything, people are going to want more. And that's when I, with the knowledge of not even having had one book published, started arguing with the president of Penguin USA and going, oh, I don't think that'll work. I don't think that's such a great idea. <laughs> so she said, well, why don't you go back to your ranch and sit and think about this, you know, and see what you come up with. And so I did. Like, And, uh, you know, to me, the, the big thing there was is, that, you know, did these characters have more stories to tell? And, you know, it came roaring back that, yeah, Lucian Conley, Victoria Moretti, uh, Henry Standing Bear, all of these characters, you know, there was just so much more um, to write about these characters that, yeah, maybe a series, you know, might be the thing to do. And, uh, you know, here here we are, 10 years on the New York Times bestsellers list and a TV show and translated into all these languages and everything. I think she might have been right and I might have been wrong. I don't know. Yeah, could could have been. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, by the way, uh, again, I keep uh, promising a break. We'll do this right after this. Um, but I, I was reading an interview you gave, I think, for your publisher. Um, and uh, let's see. Oh, here it is. Uh, you say, Tony Hillerman once told me, at the risk of sounding like an old sports analogy, you got to play them one at a time in, in, terms, <laughs> of, in terms of writing a series. got to got to keep each one different, each one fresh. I was uh, extraordinarily fortunate in that I had a short story um, that won the Tony Hillerman Award. Look at, uh, uh, and it was uh, it got published in, in uh, um, Cowboys and Indians magazine. And the great thing about it was is you got to go have dinner with Tony Hillerman, you know. And of course, I'd read all of Tony Hillerman's books. Like that, and uh, it, it's always a, a dicey proposition to meet your heroes like that because they may not turn out to be quite as heroic as you have envisioned them. Like that, and I, I needn't have worried because Tony Hillerman. Um, was and still is like one of the most charming and gracious individuals I ever could have possibly hoped to meet. Um, he was an absolutely magnificent human being, like that. And uh, you know, he wrote blurbs for my books, you know, and we just you know really kind of hit it off, like that. And uh, you know, I, I look back, like that, and uh, you know, the, the advice that he gave me on a number of different subjects um, is probably some of the keys to the success, you know, that I've had. Um, you know, one of the wonderful things he said was is uh, you know, you need to help other people coming along. Like, and he said, you know, you can't 
can't really help people that are further up the ladder, but you can usually reach back behind and help people that are coming along behind you. Um, he was one of those authors that didn't mind other authors, you know, kind of coming into the business. There are a lot of big name authors that you know won't write blurbs, that don't you know want to be bothered or feel like they're being harassed or that there's some sort of competition um, whenever you know another author is coming along. And Tony was just not one of those guys. He was amazing, um, old school, so gracious, and uh, I, I can never be able to say you know enough good about him, as charming as he was. Um, one quick little story like that that you know kind of explains maybe some of the mysticism and spiritualism that's you know, in his books and also in mine. Um, there was one evening a few years ago like that where I was carrying some firewood in to you know the wood burning stoves like that that we generally keep going for about six months out of the year, and I was carrying the wood in and my wife said, "Oh my, look over there!" And on the north pasture, I've got a teepee and I take the canvas off, but the spires are still out there, the poles are still out there, and then perfectly. Um, silhouetted, you know, in the full moon was this, you know, um, great horned owl. And mm. according to the Northern Cheyenne, you know, the appearance of the great horned owls are basically, they're messengers. They, they bring you know, messages back and forth between this world and the camp of the dead. And I looked at my wife and I said, well, somebody must be sending us a, a message and, you know, making a joke. And uh, we went to bed that night and I got up the next morning and I got an email from Ann Hillerman, Tony's daughter, that Tony had passed away that night. Mm. And uh, I, I don't joke about those things mm -hmm. so much anymore, I have to admit. Yeah, yeah, quite quite the experience. Uh, by the way, do you, it, it, did you get to meet any of your other influences? Did you did you get to meet Ivan Doig, for example? Oh yeah, Ivan was a, a very good friend. Like I knew him from being up in Montana, and then you know whenever he had uh, moved to Seattle, whenever I would go to Seattle, I would hook up with he and his wife, like and go to Ivar's and have uh, um, chowder and beer. Like and uh, you know chowder, you know, doesn't lead to that much conversation, but beer certainly does. Like and, and uh, we just really hit it off. Like and he is just a good old Montana guy. Like and uh, you know I'd been spent enough time in enough bunk houses, you know, and back behind the racks, you know, in, uh, in enough rodeos like that that we just really, really, really hit it off like that and uh the charming thing about him was is he had just such a, an incredible sense of what it is that he did um I, I one of my favorite quotes from him i have to laugh about it like it, uh, there was a big article that they had in the new york times about him and uh you know one of the first questions they said they asked him about the the future of the uh, the western and I remember him looking at me, and he said, oh, that's such a stupid question. Look at, and he says, I'm just waiting for the day that they ask Isadora Welty about the future of the Southern. <laughs> he says, well, you know, why are they so quick to, like, bury the Western anyway? <laughs> so, <laughs> he had a very clear idea of, like, you know, what it was that he wrote and what he did. And, uh, you know, and that, that kind of clarity very, is very rare. Look at, and so I, 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 whenever I'm in trouble, I think about what it is that Ivan would think in such situations. <laughs> but, uh, but, yeah, and then, I, you know, uh, um, Robert Parker, I got to, to speak with him like that he wrote me a wonderful blurb for uh, the first book that came out the cold dish like that and uh, you know he wanted to come out to Wyoming and go fishing you know and I told him absolutely like you know I'll, I'll try and get you out here as quick as I can like that and uh, he passed away before we ever got a chance to to go out and go fishing like that but uh, you know that, that that's the thing you know about you know a lot of these wonderful authors is that you know that a lot of them are passing away and you know and you you, you look at the body of work that they have and you realize that there you know there isn't going to be anymore um, I mean I I know the trend nowadays is, you know, for a lot of the, the estates and everything to hire another author, you know, to come in and, you know, and, and write, a, you know, a book, you know, for in the name of, you know, another author. But I don't know, it, it, sometimes they work and they're very wonderful books like that. But the magic of, of having that author write those books is, you know, generally, you know, gone when they go. Mm. Well, uh, hopefully we won't face that with Longmire for, for many more years. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, well, unless I die of a heart attack digging right. out that, that ranch road, I think we're going to be perfectly safe. <laughs> That's right. So. Yeah, th thank heaven for your tractor. Uh, let's take, <laughs> let's right. take a let's take a break. Uh, we're talking with Craig Johnson, uh, Wyoming-based writer, uh, New York Times bestselling author of the Walt Longmire novels, uh, basis for the Netflix original drama. Which uh, uh, Craig Johnson, you said just just wrapped. Uh, we think this probably the, was the final season. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, we've been out of production for about two and a half years now, like that, and uh, it's still, you know, it's still one of the top fifteen shows on Netflix. Like that, I mean, we keep hearing rumors that Netflix is going to drop it, but then Netflix doesn't drop it, like that. And you know, of course, trying to get information from Netflix is like trying to get information from the trees. You know, you can wander around in the forest and talk to the trees, but they probably aren't going to talk back very much, like that. And so we haven't heard, you know, from Netflix, you know, uh, a definitive, you know, response as to when they're going to get rid of the TV show. But I mean, I guess if it's one of their top fifteen shows. 
grows year after year, um, they kind of want to hang on to it. And you know, they they didn't stop production because it wasn't pulling an audience. They they stopped production because basically they wanted to buy the show um, from Netflix. I mean, not from Netflix, but from Warner Brothers, who are the producers. They're the studio that produced Longmire. And you know, Warner Brothers didn't really want to sell the show to Netflix, which is kind of the same situation that we found ourselves in in cable television with A and E like that. So you know, there's still the possibility that Warner Brothers will find a home um, and go back into production. You know, with Longmire, it was interesting to me to discover that Warner Brothers about I don't know about eight months ago actually made the statement that they were going to have their own streaming uh, platform, their own station. You know, like Paramount and a number of other uh, uh, these uh, these studios. I think what they've discovered is that, that streaming platforms are relatively easy to do, but producing television shows and movies are kind of hard. And so they figured we're already doing the hard work. Why don't we start doing some of the easy work? And so it'll be interesting to see what happens. I do know that all of the actors are still very fired up um, and very excited about the thought of you know continuing the storylines. You know they they feel like you know that there was a lot left hanging and a lot that they still want to do with these characters, and that's that's very flattering. You know as the creator you know of that world. Um, to have all of those actors, you know, still be excited. I mean, we we were out in Los Angeles, like at, for an event. You know, it happened to be, you know, near the Super Bowl, like, and so we were at a friend's place, you know, and just had a little, you know, impromptu Super Bowl party, and the whole cast showed up, and uh, that's that's really kind of wonderful. It kind of it kind of gives you a sense of the the, the family um, that that this you know that this television show and these books kind of engendered, and then the fact that they're they're willing to come to Buffalo, Wyoming, and do Longmire Days year after year. It's kind of kind of wonderful. Uh, We'll have more with uh, Craig Johnson following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and PBS Utah and the Natural History Museum of Utah. Explore the American West with Prehistoric Road Trip, hosted by Emily Grassley. Join an interactive online preview, followed by a panel discussion with paleontologists across the state. Information at pbsutah.org slash events. Support also comes from USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences, offering a Master of Public Health degree with an emphasis in nutrition-related sciences that may be explored on campus or completed 100% online. Information at mph.usu.edu. UPR is your public radio station, and we share your concerns about finding ways to safely support restaurants and retailers in our communities. That is why we are offering free on-air and online announcements to help you better inform your customers about COVID-19 shopping, dining, and entertainment services. Simply go to upr.org and submit your hours for dine-in operations, pandemic policy shopping guidelines, virtual road trip links, and special curbside or drop-off food or grocery delivery details. UPR is committed to reconnecting us all, however your business or organization is making that happen. Let us help you by going to upr.org. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in February. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams, and we're pleased to have with us for the hour uh, Wyoming writer Craig Johnson. He's the uh, best-selling author of the Walt Longmire mystery novels. They're the basis for Longmire, the Netflix original drama. And the latest in the series is Land of Wolves. Uh, here's the, the plot in brief. Recovering from his harrowing experiences in Mexico, Sheriff uh, Walt Longmire returns to Absaroka County, Wyoming, to lick his wounds and try once again to maintain justice in a place with grudges that go back generations. When a shepherd is found dead, Longmire suspects it could be suicide. The shepherd's connection to a powerful family of Basque ranchers with a history of violence leads the sheriff into an intricate investigation of a possible murder. There's also um, messages from Longmire's spiritual guide, Virgil White Buffalo, inside Mallow Cup candies, um, and a wolf is involved. Um, that's uh, Land of Wolves. So I want to get talking about this uh, latest novel and uh, maybe some upcoming uh, works, uh, Craig Johnson. Uh, first of all, um, Longmire himself, I'm trying to pull this up here, um, and you, you've said the, the the guys who are six feet two inches of twisted steel and sex appeal, every woman wants him, every man fears him. That's not him, you say. <laughs> yeah, Walt. Uh, that, that that's kind of. 
kind of like you know, you, you, that's the general you know protagonist that you have in a lot of crime fiction. Um, they, they, they tend to be these these perfect you know kind of characters. And uh, there's an old proverb like that that you know we like people for their virtues, but we love them for their faults. Um, generally, it's the things that are wrong with people that you know that draw us to them. Um, whether you know be an attempt you know to try and repair those faults or try and like you know try and fill those voids you know within those characters. But uh, I think it's also just a, a little bit more realistic, you know, to be honest with you. You know, I, 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 you know, I really don't want to hang around with those characters that are so perfect and never make a mistake or anything. I mean, every once in a while I get an email from somebody that says, you know, I'm not reading your books anymore because Walt did this, and I don't think, you know, that that was the right thing to do, like, and uh, I'm never reading your books again. Well, then the next year comes along and they write me another letter that says, I don't like what Walt did in this book, and I'm, I'm never reading your books again. And I'm like, aren't you the same guy that wrote me last year and said you weren't going to read more the books? Um, I think that, you know, it's easy to look and search for that perfection, but it's a little bit harder to maintain. Um, and so for me, you know, Walt is just a little bit more like the rest of us. He's, he's more of an everyman. Um, <clears throat> I gave him a couple of like you know uh, of abilities like uh, he, he's dogged, he's determined, you know, and, and he's the last person that you want after you if you've done something wrong like that because you know inevitably he'll he'll find you, you know, and, and he's smart, he's well read. I mean, that was one of the things for me that was kind of important. Like at that, you know, I had this idea that you know maybe the people that read my books, maybe they've read other books, you know, and so maybe if I make Walt a reader, you know, that'll be a, a nice bridge, you know, to them and something that they can, you know, see Walt as being, you know, much more like them. Um, and then the decency, like at the fact that, like, you know, he is a decent human being. Like, at he's, he doesn't take advantage of the opportunities of the, of the office that he holds. He really uses it to the advantage of trying to take care of people and trying to help people along the way. And uh, I think that that just makes for, you know, a, a lot more of an enjoyable character. I mean, if, if, if the guy is perfect, where does he go? You know, what, what, is, he, what is he going to do? Um, you know, and then, you know, there, there are the usual, you know, uh, stereotypical kind of things, you know, the alcoholic, uh, divorced, you know, de detective. I mean, there are certain tropes that you can follow, but they've kind of been done so many times before like that, that it's much more interesting to me to find something maybe a little bit more complicated, um, with Walt, you know, to try and make him more human. Uh, Walt, uh, in the previous book, he's, he's had an adventure, harrowing adventure in Mexico. He's gone up against the drug cartel. He's... And he's wounded, uh, you know, physically and and mentally, I guess, spiritually. He's he's, he's trying to heal up uh, as we get to this book. Absolutely, like, and that's kind of one of the. <laughs> the, the enjoyable, you know, things about the books too, like it is, is that uh, you know when I'm writing them, like that, the, the enjoyability is like that, that. It's all one body of work. I mean, it's 15 novels, two novellas, and a collection of short stories. But you know, for me, I, I try and put a continuity to the books, like that, so that each one is only a couple of months, you know, after the last one. And there were, you know, the, the reason behind that being that whenever I would read a series of books that I really enjoyed, I was always annoyed whenever you know they would start the book by saying it was two years since I had da 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 da. And I'm like, well, what the hell happened to this character for two years? You know, what was he doing? And what was he involved with? What, what was she about? What was she involved with? And all these things. And so, for me, like, it's it's important to have that sense of continuity, like, it's so that you know, it's only a couple of months between books, um, so we kind of remember, you know, a little bit about what happened, you know, uh, in the previous books. The other thing it does is it's kind of provided uh, an effect of uh, slowing down the aging process with Walt. Um, you know, with Walt being a Vietnam veteran, you know, and everything, he. Uh, he is a, an individual of a certain age. And so, you know, whenever I'm writing the books, I kind of have to take that into consideration, you know, that he's not going to be jumping, you know, off cars and, and uh, you know, skydiving and doing a lot of these things. I mean, he, he really, you know, kind of has to, you know, act his age to a certain extent. Although I do push the envelope on that an awful lot of the time, just simply because, you know, the situations that he finds himself in. But then the ramifications of that, you know, the, the fact that he is a little stoved up um, and a little busted up, you know, not only physically but mentally. Um, and, yeah, definitely Depth of Winter was probably, you know, one of the most, you know, uh, drastic uh, kind of situations that Walt kind of found himself in. Um, but, you know, and that's the trick. Like, that, that resonance has to go on into future books. Like, and so, you know, Walt's kind of stoved up and doing the best that he can to survive. Um, and he's kind of feeling a little bit like, you know, one of these rogue males, you know, that's been kicked off from the pack. 
um, and is no longer really a, a member of that society. I mean, he's sitting there at the Busy Bee Cafe looking down the main street, you know, with Vic Moretti, his, his undersheriff, and he, he's having a hard time getting back, you know, after the experiences, you know, that he had in Mexico. And, you know, anybody that reads the newspapers or, or, or watches television or on the radio or whatever like that knows that the things that are going on down there are absolutely horrific. And so there was no way that Walt could come, you know, whistling and skipping back into his life uh, in Wyoming like that and just go on like nothing happened. I mean, it had to be something that was going to be cataclysmic, you know, to him like that. And so, you know, it's going to take a while, you know, for him to get over the effects of the things that he had to deal with and the things he had to do, um, not only to survive, like, but also to make sure that the people he cared about so deeply, you know, should survive, too. And, uh, and and that, you know, I think rings, you know, pretty true in the books. You know, Walt's, you know, whole ideal about, you know, the, the world that he lives in. I mean, you've got this wolf that's this, like, aged, you know, wolf that's been kicked off from the packs in the Lamar Valley over in Yellowstone. And we do get those every once in a while, the ones that make it over here into the Bighorn Mountains. like it. And, uh, you know, you've got to feel a little bit sorry for them, like after these lone wolves that are out looking for packs that don't exist anymore in a world that doesn't exist anymore. And so in some ways, you know, Walt feels a certain empathy, you know, for this Walt, you know, I mean, for this wolf, like as far as, you know, being kicked out from the pack and kind of not knowing where your home is anymore. And Longmire, at one point in the book, he, he um, you know, musing about the wolf and wolves, uh, he, he says they are empathetic creatures. They have to be. They have to kind of get inside the head of, the, of, uh, of uh, any, you know, I guess, pray that they're they're following or or anybody or else around yeah, or human <laughs> beings yeah yeah i think that that's a lot of i mean always whenever you're dealing you know with a, a you know a touchstone kind of issue like at like wolves like at um you know uh, that, that you know people tend to be galvanized you know on one side or the other and you know i think that you know one of the challenges of writing that type of book of course is is that you know you have to try and be as honest as you can possibly be and try and you know give both sides of the argument you know but uh, you know the fact is the wolves are here like that and so, you know, then the question becomes, like, is that going to be, you know, a, uh, you know, a work for good? Is it going to be a work for bad? You know, what position are you going to take? Where are you going to be on this? And, you know, in many ways, like, it's, it's a little more complicated than it may first appear, which is a lot of the social issues and a lot of the issues that, you know, that we in the, uh, the American West deal with. It sounds pretty cut and dry like that, but it's usually a little bit more complex. And uh, and for Walt, you know, he has to deal with those complexities. Um, I remember, you know, one of the things I did, you know, for this particular book was uh, was to talk with the large carnivore uh, uh, task force, you know, for uh, Game and Fish, you know, here in Wyoming. And one of the first things they said to me, well, the biggest and most dangerous carnivore that we ever have to deal with is usually human beings. I get no response, you know, to what it is that these other carnivores are doing. And uh, and that for me, you know, became really an issue, you know, in the book. It was a, it was it was fun, you know, to do that research and find out, you know, what is it is that you know that wolves are involved with, you know, with as far as uh, the ranchers are concerned, like that. And then, you know, of course, the Extapari character, the the Basque rancher, you know, of course, was the voice, you know, of ranchers. Like, and I think he makes a you know a very you know a very important case, like that, you know, against the wolves, you know, whereas you know Kiesik Chichu, like that, who's the you know the environmentalist, you know, makes the strong case for the wolves. And I think that that's you know one of your jobs, you know, as a as a novelist, which dealing with you know with topical um, issues like that, is to try and show all sides of that issue like that, and uh, and try and do it in a satisfactory manner. The the Basque element is very fascinating. Of course, the Basque culture is fascinating. Uh, I'm aware of uh, you know the, many of the Basque uh, descendants in in Nevada. Do you have Basque in uh, in Wyoming? We do. We do. <laughs> One of the funny things for me was is I uh, when the second book came out, uh, Death uh, Death Without Company, like which deals a lot, you know, with the Basques. Um, it, it was funny for me, like that. It was I, I was on tour in France and in Spain, like that. And it was funny because when I was on, tra- on tour in the U.S., people would ask me, "There are Basques in Wyoming?" Like that, you know. And I'd be, "Yeah." Like that. And so then when I was in Spain and France, you know, especially along that Pyrenees portion, like that, of the frontier between the two countries, where the Basques really are, like that. And I would go and do events there. They would look at me and they 
would go, there are Basques in Wyoming? And I'd be like, yeah, you guys lost them or what? Like, there, there are a lot of Basques. <laughs> so for me, that's always a fun thing to try and bring across, you know, because there's always going to be the imagery, um, you know, the stereotypes and the cliches that where we are is just cowboys and Indians and that's all. Like that. Well, you know, there's a myriad, you know, of ethnicities like and, and societies and cultures, you know, that make up, you know, the complexity of the American West. And it's always going to be, you know, a joy for me like that to, to go and explore those and include them in the books. And, you know, in Buffalo has actually, you know, been po- been home to like the, 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 the National Basque Festival like that. And so to me, it's a, a very unique group of people. I mean, they're, they're an amazingly tenacious, tough uh, people like that. And, you know, they also provide like a very different kind of flavor, you know, to the books, a more European, you know, kind of flavor to the books. Like that. And so I'm never going to neglect, you know, any, any particular group um, whenever it is that I'm writing the books. Like, it's just a question of, okay, well, what's the message of this book? You know, is this something that's going to be important, you know, to the development of the storyline, to the plot, to the characters? You know, where are the characters when you start this book? You know, is this going to be something that's going to, you know, allow them to evolve and change, which I think is, you know, one of the key elements, I think, when you're writing a series that, you know, you really can't let the characters be the same, you know, for like 15 books. You really, they have to have an arc and a flow like that, that they're going to go through changes that are going to happen in their lives like that. I mean, that's just, uh, that's just a part of being human. And, uh, and for me, that, 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 that essential quality, you know, comes from, you know, having those different aspects and different portions of, you know, where it is that we live here in the American West and, and utilizing them in each book. Uh, well, Longmire uh, has uh, has a sense of spirituality, right? In fact, a spiritual guide, Virgil White Buffalo, who uh, uh, he feels he's receiving messages uh, in a very unusual way in this book. <laughs> Actually, he, he fights against it and doesn't think he does. Like he's one of those. Whenever I was first writing the books, like at, um, I knew that you know that there was going to be a strong sense of spirituality um, in the books, like at, and I knew probably that it was going to be a native spirituality because I thought that that would be. Um, much more honest. I mean, whenever I'm hanging around with my good buddy Marcus Red Thunder, you know, up on the Northern Cheyenne Reservation, like that, and uh, I'm just, or any of my other friends, like a Tiger Scalp Cane and a number of others, like uh, when I'm hanging around with those guys, you know, sitting at a campfire, like, uh, you know, and we're talking, I'm, I'm, very aware that my kind of people have only been, you know, in the American West for a couple of hundred years, whereas theirs have been here for thousands, and it's quite possible that they might have a uh, a shrewder, you know, kind of uh, understanding of where it is we are and, and what might this world, you know, that we live in be about. And so I knew that that spirituality was going to be much more Native-oriented. And, uh, and, and Henry is, 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 you know, kind of emblematic of that. And Walt, on the other hand, is kind of emblematic of uh, the white society, the white culture, the mainstream culture of, you know, the American West. And, you know, he, he fights against it. You know, he, he just doesn't, you know, believe it exists. And, uh, you know, and, and I, there's a certain part of me that, you know, that's very, you know, connected with that myself, but you know, maybe even more so with Walt, because the world that he deals with is one that deals with empirical data. Um, he is a detective. Like that, he needs to know the facts. Um, emotion, you know, uh, mysticism, all of that really doesn't enter into his line of work. You know, what he needs to know is the facts so that he can break these cases and, you know, and solve these crimes like that. And so none of that really enters into his world. But he keeps getting intruded upon um, little elements, you know, from, you know, Henry, from Virgil, um, this, this man that he met, you know, early, like the fourth book in the series. Um, you know, they, they, they keep making these, you know, these little entrances, you know, into his life and these little signposts, you know, keep coming up, you know, and uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I've, I've had enough time out there, you know, in the wilderness, you know, where you're out there where nobody knows where you are and the little voices start talking to you. And, uh, you know, the, the, I think Shakespeare might have said it best that there are far greater things on heaven and earth Horatio than are dreamt of in thy philosophies and that's just another layer I think it's another layer in the books that makes them um, not only entertaining but also a little bit informative of like you know uh, the people that I hold very near and dear like that I mean my my ranch is just to the south of the northern Cheyenne and the Crow Reservation and um you know, for me, you know, they're an essential part of like who I am and where I am. I mean, they're my friends, my neighbors, practically family. And so for me to not include them and their beliefs in the books, you know, would be, you know, kind of disenfranchising them. And I I just wouldn't want to be responsible for that. Uh, I notice uh, in interviews, you correct people if they use the word Native American. (laughs) Well, I don't so much as as 
my Northern Cheyenne and Crow buddies do, they generally laugh at me whenever I try and be politically correct and try and use the term Native American. They always look at me and go, where were you born? <laughs> and I have to admit that I was born in America. And they say, well, you would be a Native American too then, wouldn't you? And so um, I, I think that, you know, with with, with most, uh, most of those situations, it's much more important to make sure that you get the tribe designation correct. You know, you don't want to call somebody Crow, Northern Cheyenne, like that, or somebody who's Northern Cheyenne, Assiniboine, or, you know, Blackfeet. You want to make sure that you get those tribal designations correct. It's much more important to them what their tribe is than some made-up name that Christopher Columbus came up with because he happened to hit the wrong continent, you know, <laughs> a couple hundred years ago. And so, uh, you know, for me, that that's just another opportunity to kind of set the record straight a little bit. They're not really into big, big into to political correctness. Like, they, 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 they tend to call things what they are. <laughs> Uh, you, you've said um, that um, uh, sometimes writing about Indians can can traffic in stereotype. You know that they're not they're not people. I think you you try to depict them as people. Uh, also, policemen. You know, cops. Um, but uh, Henry Standingbury is a fascinating character, and one of one of the key elements of him he brings some humor, which I think is is uh, sometimes it gets lost in depiction of uh, of Indians. Oh, absolutely. I don't think there's ever been a, a group of individuals that's been more maligned as not having a sense of humor as much as the American Indian. They're always like portrayed as these stoic cigar store kind of characters, and that's just not the people I know. Um, the book that I'm writing right now, called Daughter of the, the Morning Star, um, is, is in essence, it's about a, uh, a young woman who's a high school phenom basketball player um, in the Lame Deer uh, Morning Stars. And she starts receiving all these death threats, like that, um, you know, that, that you know, and 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 she's got a a sister who went missing, you know, about a year ago, like that. And so, um, Lolo Long, the tribal chief, like that, police chief, like that, she asks, you know, Walt to come up and maybe take a look into the situation and see if you know they can neutralize some of these threats and find out where they might be coming from, and and along the way maybe also find out what happened to her sister, you know, more than a year ago. And so, you know, I'm up there, you know, on the res, like you know, going to these you know basketball games and spending time. And it's, you know, they're just an incredible people. They really, really are. Like that. And, you know, one of the quickest ways to demonize a group of people is to pretend like they don't have the higher intellectual functions of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, <coughs> excuse me, like that's just not true. Um, in my experience, like, you know, most of the, the natives I know up on the Northern China Crow Reservation work on about 17 different layers of irony. And if you're not aware of that irony, you get to be the butt of that irony. Like, and so you, you better be on your A game uh, and be paying attention, you know. And, and uh, it's just another one of the, you know, the, the layers, you know, of, of people that, you know, I think, you know, gets kind of like cast aside. Um, and maybe that's, you know, more true in crime fiction. You know, crime fiction tends to be, you know, driven so much about the plot, you know, and, and who done it and all that. And, and that's all fine. Like, those are all, you know, wonderful elements, you know, to have within a book, that cipher of like X plus two equals four, your mind immediately goes to, well, what is the X? You know, I think that's a, a wonderful way to drive a story like that. But, the story better also have some, you know, other things in it too, like you know, interesting characters, some sort of social commentary, um, and then you know, the the wild card there, humor, um, which is always a little bit dicey, simply because it comes in so many different flavors, and you know, it might not be the flavor of the person who picked up your book, um, which is why it is so important to put so many different types of humor in your book. I mean, Walt has a very homegrown, um, close to the vest, you know. Uh, homespun kind of like philosophical kind of humor. Victoria Moretti, who's this transplant from Philadelphia, has a very sharp, uh, sarcastic, Eastern style of humor. Like Henry Standing Bear has a very dry, um, you know, sense of humor, with a, loaded with irony. Like, and I think that that's, that's the important thing, that one type of humor doesn't fit all the characters, but you need to, you know, to be able to analyze and see, you know, where their humor would come from and, uh, and try and play it straight, try and be as honest with that humor as you possibly can. If you just join us, we're talking with Craig Johnson, author of the Longmire series, and uh, the latest uh, book is uh, Land of Wolves. Uh, we just have, uh, oh, about three minutes left. Um, one of the things that endears me to Longmire, you know, myself, is uh, that he's very low-tech. And I, I love the I love the running thing about uh, Ruby and and Walt's computer. Uh, she, she 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 prints out his emails uh, for him. He she's she's trying to get him to get into the new world. 
you know what that uh, that actually came from a, 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 a what's really wonderful in, in the job that I do is is I get to go and and spend time you know doing ride-alongs with sheriffs and deputies and the great thing about it is sheriffs will tell you really good stories but deputies will tell you better stories and then the dispatcher she will tell you what actually happened um, so dispatchers are always a, a wonderful entity to get a hold of as far as these type of things are concerned and uh, there was actually and still is like at a a, a dispatcher here in Wyoming who has to print out her sheriff's emails so that he can hand answer them and she can type them back into the computer and uh, and send those off like and she was not real happy telling me this story and I thought this this just sounds like something that Walt Longmire would probably do to poor Ruby and uh, you know and her response to this is okay I, I'm too old for this foolishness and you're going to have to start having a computer and you're going to have to start learning how to do this like that well one of the major humor concepts you know that runs throughout the entire length of Land of Wolves is poor Ro- or poor Walt trying to learn how to use a computer. Um, he's just not really tech savvy. I mean, there's a reason why Walt doesn't carry a cell phone. Um, I, I always laugh about that whenever people in other parts of the country and other countries ask me, you know, why doesn't Walt carry a cell phone? I'm always looking at them and going, you've never been to Wyoming, have you? Like, because unless you want to take selfies with pronghorn antelope, it really isn't much use because without any kind of signal, it's not going to be any, any use to you. Like, and so that for me is the fun part. Like, to show the limitations, you know, of that technology. Um, seems to me so much of the time nowadays with all the CSI stuff and everything, you know, the, the, the scientific aspect, you know, the technology seems to take on this deus ex machina kind of quality where, you know, they can just, you know, pull up, you know, some uh, fingerprints and all these different things like getting DNA evidence and all that. And I ran into two DCI investigators here in Wyoming. That's the Division of Criminal Investigation where we have one crime lab in the whole state of Wyoming down near Laramie. And uh, I asked him, I said, you know, how long does it take you guys to get DNA evidence? And the one looked at the other and then turned around and looked at me and said, is this a high-profile case? And I said, well, let's pretend like it is. And he said, about nine months. And so I thought, well, that's not really particularly honest in what they're doing in these TV shows and in these books. And they go, no, it's not, not really. And so I thought, well, yeah, let's let's try something a little bit different. And uh, and Walt moves at a different pace. And, uh, you know, it, it, for me, it's a joy, you know, to, to have him not be able to whip out his cell phone, you know, every three minutes and be in contact with everything and everybody. Um, it actually gives him time to think. And uh, that's always a good thing. Uh, so the latest book, Land of Wolves, tell us again what uh, what the next book will be. The next book is actually called uh, The Next to Last Stand, and uh, it actually concerns, you know, an art theft, you know, of the Cassili Adams painting um, Custer's Last Fight. And, uh, you know, Walt comes across, you know, there's actually a, uh, right here in, in Buffalo, we have the, the Soldier and Sailor's Home. It's the Veterans Home, uh, you know, here in Wyoming. And uh, Walt, you know, there's a, you know, there's one of the, you know, the, uh, the, the veterans up there passes away. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, the sheriff's office will get called to go up there and take a look because there'll be armament or there will be, uh, you know, rounds of, you know, ammunition or something that need to be disposed of or taken care of. And Walt gets there and, you know, thinks he's going to have to find a, you know, he makes fun of the, the woman in charge, Carol, and says, well, what is it, a, you know, a flamethrower or a bazooka? And she goes, no, it's worse. And they go in and they flip open this guy's footlocker and find a, a four-shime shoebox full of $100 bills. It's basically a million dollars. And then the question becomes, what was he doing with a million dollars in a four-shime shoebox, which kind of leads us down the line of uh, discovering where this painting, you know, might actually still exist that was supposedly burned um, at the 7th, head, uh, the 7th Cavalry Headquarters in uh, Fort Bliss in 1946. Well, we reached the end of our time here. Uh, the website, by the way, is craigallenjohnson.com. And uh, the books are all out and, and available. Uh, Craig Johnson, a pleasure as always. Thank you. Oh, absolutely mine. Such a, such a wonderful interview. It always is one of the highlights of my year, i got to admit. Well, thank you so much. Uh, we'll look forward to the next book as well. Uh, and, and thanks for listening to Access Utah. Support for Access Utah on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Cache Valley Chamber of Commerce, offering COVID-19 resources, video meetings, and social media exposure, building value for all types of Cache Valley businesses. Details at cachechamber.com.
This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU-FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. Utah Public Radio hopes you will join us in thanking our sponsors, the many businesses we rely on for their continued support of our mission to provide thoughtful and informative programming. The critical financial backing we receive from our business community means we can bring you news updates and online classical music programming, and that's a wonderful thing, especially in uncertain times. What remains certain? UPR's commitment to serve our listeners here and online at upr.org and through our UPR app.